0: Just a quick note before we get started, we recorded this episode before the COVID-19 outbreak, and we're releasing it during the citywide shelter-in-place order. There are several mentions of a concert that Dr. Maxill is putting together. Although we're sure it'll happen in the future, it's obviously been postponed. Keep listening, and we'll post updates in the future. And now, on with the show.
1: Across the Brazos and Waco,
0: Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Waco's Voice.
2: Usually, he's known as the voice of Old Man River.
0: Dr. Horace Maxil, associate professor of music theory at Baylor University, joins us to talk about Jules Bledsoe.
2: A Waco native, acclaimed international figure in the field of opera at the turn of the century, more like the 20s and 30s. Not only did he sing in French, he was able to land opera roles in Italian, and he sang German lead. And now, join us on a trip
0: into
1: Waco's past. Cross. Brazos and white coat. Ride hard and I'll make it bite
0: All right, welcome back to the studio. Stephen, we've got a special guest. As always, would you mind introducing him? Well, I've been chasing
3: this guy for about a year to get him on the podcast, and he's finally agreed to do it. I'm really (laughs) excited about this. So Horace Maxill is with us, who is a colleague at Baylor University in the Department of Music, and he's been working on a really neat project over the past year and doing some research and on Jules Bledsoe, which we haven't talked about Jules Bledsoe yet, but a really important local figure, I think. And so Horace is here to tell us one, what he's learned in his research about Jules and and two, just how he, I know he's been inspired by some things he's learned. So we'll get into all that. That'll, That'll be a new name to some of our listeners
0: and maybe to you. It was new to me and I've actually learned quite a bit since we've just been talking and I am intrigued. I'm very interested. Horace, if we could start off, maybe you can just introduce yourself and kind of tell people about your background.
2: All right, I'm originally from Shreveport, Louisiana, a proud Louisiana native. My musical background is pretty much rooted in the African American tradition. I grew up playing a lot by ear uh, in church, uh, playing in jazz band and things like that in high school. Uh, not really getting into the written part of music until I got to college, even though I did play in band, so I was able to read in band, but really getting into the study of Western European styles, we'll just say that. When we get to college and caught the bug, and I've been able to manage (laughs) and walk between both worlds since then.
0: Awesome. And we're talking about Jules Bledsoe today. So for people who don't know, who is Jules Bledsoe?
2: Jules Bledsoe, Waco native, acclaimed international figure in the field of opera at the turn of the century, more like the 20s and 30s. Really an interesting person just from the from the research and from what we've gathered so far because not only was he a singer, he was also a composer. He was also an entrepreneur. But his claim to fame was his performance of Old Man River in the musical uh, Showboat. And so usually he's known as the voice of Old Man River. <laughs> and so that's his claim to fame, but there was much more going on other than Old Man River.
0: Can we kind of start by talking about growing up for him and how that was?
2: From what I've gathered so far, just a uh, regular childhood existence. Music was a part of his life. He came from a musical family, the Cobb family. His, I believe uh, there's a relative that was one of the founding members or perhaps one of the first pastors of uh, New Hope Baptist Church. So there are connections there, not only with Waco, but with within the, the Black religious community in Waco during those times. He continued on and went into college. He went to Bishop College, a historically Black college in Texas. Matriculated there, did well. Performed a few times here in 1916 and maybe even around 1917, which I found interesting. The interesting part about that is that he performed as a pianist. So even though he's known as a singer, opera singer of international acclaim, his work at Bishop College was actually on piano. He leaves Bishop College, I believe, there's a brief stint in the military. He lands in New York around the 1920s. Some people hear him sing. He starts to study with uh, vocal teachers around 1922, lands a very, very important gig in 1924, I believe it was at Aeolian Hall, and from there the career takes off.
3: So he's really a brilliant individual. I think he goes to Columbia to study medicine in in 1920, Mm -hmm. graduates magna cum laude from Bishop College, and so Extremely bright and it's gonna be interesting to talk about when he makes it. He had a lot of prospects but he makes this decision and in go into music. But you mentioned the work he's doing on the piano. Do you know what sort of work he's doing in those early performances in 1617?
2: He was performing standard literature from the programs that I've pulled out. Uh, He was performing works by an Afro-British composer, Samuel Coleridge Taylor, from the 24 Negro Melodies, which was published in 1905. And he's also performing works by Chaminade and Smetna and other European composers, basically performing standard literature that you would expect any pianist to be performing during that time. I think I've even seen a Beethoven sonata, a couple of movements from a Beethoven sonata. So he was studying music at a high level and playing, obviously, at a high level. And perhaps the move toward medicine or pre-med was a preemptive strike to go into a career that would make a little more money than (laughs) playing piano sonatas for an African-American male during the, the first decade of the 20th century. Probably not a lot of prospects at that time.
3: Yeah, where are these
2: performances in 1617? That- I believe 1917 was in Marlin, whatever hall was available to him at that time. Okay. The performance in 1916 was at the Auditorium Theater on Bridge Street.
3: Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I'd love to talk about what you know about this turn into music in Manhattan or the opportunities that opened up for him in Manhattan because it's it's a big jump. To go from you know he's playing some piano in Central Texas to in 1924 he's playing in a major performance hall in Midtown Manhattan. I'm just wondering how that happens <laughs> or how do we know that happens? It's Quite
2: a jump. Yeah, it's a it's, it's a it's major leap from the standpoint of of medium, if you will. I mean moving from piano to voice. However. I believe that his familiarity with the classical literature didn't make it that big of a leap. Like I said, you know, when you're performing works by pianists like Franz Liszt or Chaminade or other composers like that, you're actually learning the musical emblems, let's say, of of the Western tradition. So those... Transfer relatively well whole cloth even if you're going into another medium. I think the the shift for him was more from instrument to instrument, more so than from aesthetic to aesthetic. He was well versed in that particular type of, of literature it was just a matter of learning it and so I think the brilliance, if you will comes from his actually learning and being able to sing in these foreign languages. Because not only did he sing in French, he was able to land opera roles in Italian. And he sang German lead. So he sang leader and he sang in all these different languages. And so not only did he have that experience with the sounds, but he was actually learning languages and and singing in those languages and performing in those languages overseas.
3: And I know for his first break, there's a patron or a sponsor that has a big part to do and him getting these opportunities in Manhattan. Is that correct? Am I remembering that correctly?
2: I would believe yeah. so. I'm not yeah. quite sure the person's name. Uh, you don't just break into Aeolian Hall in 1924 unless you know someone. Yeah. But I'm thinking once you break into the scene and you get into those circles, it's not that difficult to move around. But again, we have to think about navigating those spaces and what arts politics might have been like for people of color in 1920, even in New York. Uh, so that's not a small accomplishment, which is why he He's often noted as the first to do a number of things uh, on the opera stage and the concert stage in the United States.
3: And that's what I I don't know, Horace, just to have a voice trained for opera. (laughs) You you know, I'm thinking of the musical forms he grew up with, Mm -hmm. being around New Hope Baptist Church, some things he may have been exposed to in his schooling, but opera i mean i I'm wondering where he would have encountered <laughs> opera or just any thoughts you've had on this well, if you we just well, looked at it. Uh, you
2: can speculate about that i mean the one could imagine that new Hope with its historical significance was probably one of the i think it was the first yeah black Baptist church in the city, and so you have this this congregation and there might be an attraction for if we're thinking about nineteen ten gospel really isn't a thing yet. So religious music is actually coming from hymns and anthems and perhaps even arranged spirituals. So the written tradition might have been very much a part of his life even before he went to Bishop College to study. So the whole idea of reading music and interpreting what he sees or what has been seen on the written page to something that comes out musically might not have been as foreign as what we might believe. Along with folk songs, one could imagine that there were also hymns and anthems being sung in those churches too. So not quite opera, mm-hmm. but still Western enough for that shift to not be as as wide a gulf to 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 breach.
3: So you just said a couple of things there that were really interesting that I didn't know that maybe our listeners might want to know a little bit more about is kind of music forms. Mm-hmm around the period. I mean, you saying that gospel wouldn't have been something that would have been a big part that early. But can you talk a little bit about maybe where the American opera scene is during this period, or even Broadway, or some of these opportunities going to get, I don't have that much of a sense of
2: that culture. Yeah, I'm not that comfortable with the American opera scene. I mean, just for there to have been an American compositional voice doesn't really come about until Copeland, Aaron Copeland, comes on the scene, or maybe even uh, maybe a little bit early, if you want to think about George Gershwin and Porgy and Bess. And so the, the blending, if you will, of, of um, American folk styles that come from African American traditions or maybe Native American traditions being cold and distilled and put into this Western form kind of m- uh, may have been thought of as the generation of or the building of an American voice in classical music. So the American opera scene, if there was a scene a large one at all. It would have definitely taken place in a larger metropolitan area like New York, but the works that would have been performed would have been those by European masters. So there just were not... American operas being performed a lot at that time and of course if you're going to get into any kind of class systems that that come out of highbrow music then certainly you definitely want to be more cosmopolitan perhaps than American in those particular instances Hmm. and of course an American sound might have been borrowed from vernacular forms like the birth of jazz and other ragtime things like that and if those are considered as lowbrow music or low music or something that's not high art. Then even if those sounds are going to be incorporated into a classical voice, it might not make the ticket if you're trying to promote yourself as being a little more learned, and that's a little unfortunate for all American composers, let alone African American ones.
3: Do we know anything else about his formative years? Just to spoil it, he's going to have an untimely death at a fairly young age. At least I think it's fairly young, and so that may have limited some of the stuff we know about kind of his formative years. But do we have any other information about kind of his early?
2: years? Not much. There are a number of letters in the um, collection that he wrote to an aunt or cousin. I can't remember who Miss Cobb was to him at the time, but there are a number of letters in a very hard hand. His hand is hard to decipher, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a number of letters in crumbly paper, but we're trying to preserve those things, And uh, but we just don't know a lot about the formative years. We know basically a lot that happens after he leaves Bishop College and goes to New York, and the career jumps off from there. Annette Geary wrote a nice piece, and so there are some anecdotal things that kind of come out of her work, and her work in the archive and the collection where, you know, okay, he sang his first song in New Hope and things like that, mm-hmm. but even there, I think the building that's erected that we'll have the concert in was erected maybe in 1927-ish, somewhere around there, so that's not even the church that, or the building that he sang his first songs in, uh, because when that church was built, he he was long gone. I
3: see. So we have the
0: letters. We have a few letters from when he's at Bishop College writing back. Mm-hmm. And so once he kind of leaves Waco and leaves this area, he doesn't really keep a lot of ties back here at all because he's kind of, to be seen doing the music he's doing, you have to be in a larger city, right?
2: Right. Okay. I do believe that, the, I think the letters to this particular relative, Miss Cobb, there are a lot of them. And so I believe that these are updates on what's going on okay. in my life or here's what's going on, here's what's going on. And I think he's learning a lot about what's going on with his family, like when mom is sick or when grandmother is sick and mm-hmm. things like that. So the correspondence is is back and forth not only is she receiving letters, but he is also receiving letters from her. But
0: he's not here a lot because he has to make it out there in the big city. Yes, and it's hard to get back.
2: you <laughs> know. His first operatic
3: leading role, role is in Deep River, I think. and and that's 1926. Do, do we have kind of early critics? Kind of covering
2: or treating? I think there were a few critical responses. I've read a few. His first yeah. appearance was a, a lesser known opera. Okay. And the, the opera was Deep River.
3: Uh, so, Horace, his first big break, his big break is Showboat. First big break is Showboat. So, t- tell me a little bit about that particular play and in kind of that particular musical uh, what role he takes in that and kind of the impact or impressions he makes from his participation in that production
2: the role in showboat was a a male lead role i think he actually was the second choice for that i think someone got and I can't remember that person's oh, name okay and so yeah, he's
3: playing Joe I think, yeah he's playing showboat.
2: Joe which was a lead but I don't think he was the first choice and so he ends up getting that role and the, the the music uh not to necessarily try to it's 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 musical theater so it's not necessarily the grand opera with those types of costumes and subtitles and all that other stuff uh, it's a little more popular in style perhaps the instrumentation might be a little bit different and so perhaps something a little more accessible if I if it's okay to say that it's okay for me randy
3: might be offended by <laughs> me, but it's all right. No, it's
2: okay. and so he uh he brings this this booming voice uh to this role and in the very very distinctive uh sound quality and so when can crit- you do it no <laughs> go for it oh come on oh, horace no, oh no singing no we can't do that <laughs> <laughs> no 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 and so critics you know, rave, you know, and he had some pretty good critical responses after his first concert in in 1924 as well toward his musicianship more so than the instrument. So many um, critics commented on his sensitivity in certain types of passages and how he pulled back or what he put a lot into it.
3: Okay, break down those two things for a historian. You said they gave him high marks for his blank, not his
2: blank. Now explain that in a way a historian can understand it. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) So perhaps the sensitivity piece or what I might call the musicianship piece is being very aware of how the text is unfolding and how the narrative is unfolding and actually adding lots of nuance to phrasing and things like that to help communicate the words of a particular moment. Whereas the instrument, whereas it's like, oh, this is such a beautiful sound or this is such a beautiful tone quality. There wasn't a lot of it, at least as far as what I've seen from critical responses, but there were some. But most critics were were very much aware and were very much invigorated by the way he approached music. Not so much uh, of the, you know, oh, well, this is a wonderful sounding voice, but much more could have been done with the piece. I see. It was more like, oh, he really shaped this piece well, and I haven't really heard it sung that way before. And so when you're bringing that element of originality to Standing work. Works, mm-hmm. That speaks as much or perhaps even more than the actual beauty of the instrument itself.
3: Well, and I'm not an expert on this, but it seems like you can train the voice, but there may be a sentiment that's more difficult to train.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: He understood dynamic contrast well. Exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to remember Showboat. I
3: remember Old Man River, mm-hmm. which obviously well from what I know of that piece J- Jules Bledsoe is a baritone if he's singing Old Man River because mm-hmm. it's a very low piece. The Old Old Man River Then I'm thinking don't, Good job don't there. put that in there. <laughs> that I'm thinking about could be the recording of that 29 cinematic take on mm-hmm. Showboat. Okay.
0: I'm keeping your singing in there. Yeah no don't. don't. <laughs> <laughs> the, the worst of the Waco history. <laughs> I was just kind of wondering was that like his big break and, and kind of where did he go from there and did he become more specialized in opera after that? Or was he doing more of these type of show tunes type of thing that we'd be more familiar with?
2: I believe that helped launch the career. I think after that, he didn't do much more with regard to musical theater because of the opera piece that took off and Mm -hmm. then being overseas and and all of that. He landed a big role in Verdi's opera, Aida. Was it Amoroso? think that might might have been who it was. And you land other roles in other operas, and so other people hear you sing, and then there's like the Emperor Jones and all of these things that come after that. So it's role after role after role. But even there, when the opera stuff kind of dries up, he still has to And so he keeps his career going as a recitalist and in a concert, you know, concertizing. So when the opera season is over, you know, it costs money to produce an opera and to pay all those people to do opera. And so it's not like he's going from opera to opera to opera. It might be, oh, I have a three month run and I have made a pretty good amount of money. But once that money runs out, I still need to sing. And so there are tons and tons of programs of him singing in and around the New York area. And then wherever he performs, he develops a following. So there might be a run out in Chicago and for a couple of venues there, a couple of churches or a couple of halls there, maybe a run out to Tennessee to do some concerts there. And so in the collection, we have these programs from all these different states. And so they're presented chronologically so we can actually see where he's performing when he's not doing opera. Now, there Mm. are large spans of time uh, where he's overseas. And so you just can't do a run out over in Germany and say, oh, yeah, I'll be back to do your your thing at at this local church on Sunday And I'll fly back over to Germany or mm-hmm. find my way back over to Germany. That's not happening. And so when there are large gaps in the programs, they usually the gaps are usually filled in by looking at playbills from stints from overseas productions of operas. And there were no musical productions, I think, overseas. All of that work was mostly opera and uh, concerts of, of Western European derivation.
0: So being overseas and doing opera, was it pretty unique for him to be a black man doing that?
2: I would think so, even though... The black presence in Europe, musical presence in Europe kind of goes back to 1910 uh, with, with uh, traveling regimental bands that kind of experimented with jazz and things like that. And so you have these marching bands or these regimental bands that are kind of taking little spins and riffs off some marches and then it kind of takes off and becomes a, its own thing. And so they're saying, what is this new music? What's going on here? And so then jazz as a term starts to develop and then these regimental band figures kind of come back and then this voice kind of comes out of New Orleans and then it all kind of gets it's mingled into a good gumbo <laughs> and then you know ask it the is dinner time yeah, yeah. yeah, and so all of that happened, so I think uh, for him, so to be a, a black man in Europe, I don't think was an unusual thing, but okay. to be a black man singing lead roles in you know Italian opera probably was.
3: yeah just recently I've seen the Green Book, and it, it's making me think of some of these recitals that he may be doing in the south, mm-hmm. and, you know you think of the opportunity he might he may have in Europe where he's facing some challenges in some of the places he's performing mm-hmm. uh, in the South. And so I'm interested in these programs as you look at kind of his career and you can follow where he's going then. What are the sorts of places he's playing? And and can we assume he's playing for primarily a white audience?
2: We'll have to assume that it's mainly a white audience, but we can also believe that some of the churches that he performed in might have been African American churches. And the reason why we say that is that not many concert halls were open to people of color, particularly in the South, in order for the classical thing to even take root in the South with regard to African American folks in particular. Those concerts, had to be performed in churches on Sunday evenings, you know. And Mm -hmm. so even in cities like Chicago, when there were limited access to certain halls, the black church was this space for classical music to be performed and heard. That's where folks did their recitals. You know, that's where the neighborhood piano teachers taught their lessons and also gave their student recitals. So even though there was limited access to the hall or the concert hall, classical music presence, if you will, in the black community was still alive and doing well. And that's probably why or could explain in some way how Bledsoe might have been into or been acclimated to the classical voice before he even got to Bishop College. Mm-hmm. You know, New Hope could have very well have been that hub yeah. for that type of activity for the community, for piano lessons for everyone. Mm-hmm. Is
0: he performing some of his, like, the classical type of music in these recitals? Yes.
2: He's performing arias from select operas that he'd all, he's already done. He's doing uh, art songs from by German composers or uh, English composers, other works like that. He's also performing works by Black composers from the spiritual tradition, like uh, works by Harry Burley, and maybe even some friends. I've seen some works in the collection by some names that I'm not quite familiar with and works that have not been published, so that he might have had some friends that say, hey, sing this. <laughs> and he sings it, and it makes it onto the program. And so there's a really interesting collection of works in that archive.
0: And you said that he also did a lot of composition. When does he
2: start composing? This is interesting, and so this is actually getting into my wheelhouse. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to say sometime around at least 1924. And the reason why I say that is because the first time that an original composition pops up on any of his programs, at least that I've seen in the archive, is in a 1925 concert that he performed here in Waco. And so one has to assume that the piece was composed before he performed it here, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't necessarily performed before. So there's a tradition, particularly with African-American singers that were doing this this type of concertizing around the United States. States as they perform German lead and arias and select arias from operas and things like that. So after they performed those European sets, it was almost expected or anticipated, you know, they were like, okay, go ahead and sing an African-American spiritual, please, 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 please. (laughs) And most Black singers did deliver on that front. What I find interesting is that a number of composers that were active as performers during that time, like Harry Burley, did sing original compositions. And so... It seems appropriate that since Jules Bledsoe had a lot of chops, you know, not Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. singing chops, but he had piano chops and he knew how to write music and he knew how music was supposed to work that, why not write my own? And so he did. And so the first original composition that pops up on any of the written programs uh, in the collection appears in 1925. I'm going to stretch to say that the first time that his compositional voice was heard was actually heard in Waco in New Hope Baptist Church. Mm -hmm. Excellent.
0: Like, what is his voice like? You know, he's been listening to all these. Grand masters of Europe and stuff, and he's been doing opera. What are his compositions like? That's
2: another good question. I'm going to say that the compositional voice is eclectic. There is a certain amount of sensitivity that he takes with the spiritual, almost a reverent nod of homage, almost to the, the ethos of where that that particular. Thing is coming from uh, where that voice is coming from or, or this collective or cultural memory or whatever you want to call it is coming from and so some of those spiritual arrangements are very loosely textured or thinly textured not a lot of pianistic activity very much chord and let the voice do all of the work so that nothing gets lost within the text. However, there are other original compositions that where he actually composed the text as well, where he wrote the text and wrote the music. And these are more artistic pieces, more poetic pieces, more expressive pieces where his harmonic language is very much chromatic. It's very colorful. Lots of pretty chords and rolling piano accompaniment. Very, very florid. It's very, you know, it's just lots of things going on that really makes it interesting musically. So when you see these two things contrasted one with the other it's interesting to know that he had the chops to do high level composition or a very um, technical? uh, Yeah, let's say a technical or a complex harmonically, uh, a complex harmonic language. Mm -hmm. All of that stuff was there and it was in his ear, but he intentionally pulled back in order to let the spiritual speak in its own way. Mm. And so when you have the spiritual arrangements that have this particular kind of treatment and then you have a piece like Beside a New Made Grave, you know, which is his own text and gets into themes of death and resurrection and things like that and these things are being conveyed musically with the voice and the piano. It really presents a different picture. I can say that there are no pieces in the collection that are written for anything other than voice. Hmm. So he composed for himself. Hmm. The Pieces are interesting in that the piano parts are very meticulously detailed. So there's lots of detail in the piano parts, phrase marks, dynamic markings, all tenutos, and all that other stuff that's needed for the pianist to know exactly what to do. But the voice part has little to no detail. Hmm. and that's because he was singing his own stuff. So he knew what to do over on top of the accompaniment. But But how do we do it now? Exactly. (laughs) That's the problem. And that's where the research comes in. And so how are we going to make these things stylistically close to what might have been going on during that time based on the score? Mm. And since these works were not published, we're dealing with his hand. We're dealing Mm. with some inaccuracies and what might, oh, was this the note? Was this the note? We're dealing with red marks and blue marks. And it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, if we have a lot of blue marks and we have one red mark, well, the red mark must mean that that was a change that was made at some point. And so you take that, and these compositions, not a lot of them are dated. What you have to do is look at the order in which they appear in the concerts mm. and say, okay, well, it must have been composed before that concert because... Mm. And so that's how we're trying to chronologically set these pieces by their the order of their appearance in the concert.
3: Yeah, so most of these pieces were performed at some point. Most yeah. of them were
2: performed at some point, yeah. but not recorded. Okay. And I think only five were published.
3: Now, do you see... Kind of an evolution compositionally and what he's doing as you look at the pieces over time?
2: I do. I see uh, more risk-taking the more he writes and I think the risks are good. He makes a lot of interesting musical choices. There's a a very probing piece that will not be on this Waco concert because he didn't perform a piece in Waco, but it's entitled Pagan Prayer, and it's a setting of a poem by County Cullen. And so 1940 marks an interesting time within the letters and the correspondence that I've been reading because this is 1939, 1938. It's one of the first times that he that I actually see the mention of race being a factor in him not getting a particular gig or race being becoming a limiting factor that's not to say that he sat aloof from all of the issues that were around during the time because there are definitely articles in newspapers where he's addressing these things Uh, and being an ambassador of sorts uh, some might have called him a race man during that time but The 38 in particular marks a time where gigs are starting to dry up, the critical responses aren't as glowing, you know, he's an aging singer, you know, that's that's a part of it. So there are certain types of hardships that are coming his way, and so there's just a lot going on. And so this pagan prayer piece is almost like a, okay, God, what's up and why? Mm. And so you hear that, at least from my playing through the the piano part and kind of looking at how the voice works and the fact that he sets a County Cullen poem, you know, he didn't set many poems by black authors. He did set some French things and, you know, so he's done other things in other languages, but he didn't do many works or many poems by black authors. And so for him to choose pagan prayer at that time, and he performed the work in 1940 and he wrote some very probing notes about what that piece meant to him. I can't remember all of the details, but it's basically about injustice and and that kind of thing. And so if there are tensions within his life, then we can definitely hear the tensions within the music and the pulling and the give and the, the take between the piano and the voice is really interesting. And so to go from Go Down Moses, which is a spiritual arrangement, all the way to pagan prayer in 1940. That's a pretty, pretty large leap. And then even after that, there are a number of patriotic songs that come around because he was active with the Roosevelts and, and touring and doing that kind of thing and promoting this patriotic piece. And so he had a piece called The Legionnaires that he would sing sometimes. And so to, to kind of get everyone riled up and, and ready for this nationalistic piece that we had to go through in the 1940s to get us ready.
3: That's really interesting. I mean, you think in just that 15 year period, the maturing of a, of a composer Yes. And, 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 and what he's dealing with, right. uh, evident in his music. Yeah.
2: And there were a number of other things which I'm interested in, but it's not a part of the musicological piece that I'm actually working with. But he was also an entrepreneur who was bold enough to open a resort for African Americans only in the mountains. And so we have to assume that the career was booming in order to acquire land and to build a resort for African Americans to go and vacation and that kind of thing. But of course, how many. African-Americans are going to be able to afford that kind of resort and to be able to support that. So, you know, you have that and you have those financial issues that come out of that. And so uh, I think he also had a farm out there that I think he might have named after his mother or grandmother or something like that. So there was an entrepreneurial piece that was also, you know, being fed and being supported perhaps by the music or perhaps or maybe vice versa, as you know, gigs were going on or not going on. Then I could do this, and and so then it just seems like around 1938 to 1940, all these things kind of start to boil over. And but nothing was so terrible or so tragic, but it wasn't perhaps as ideal as it had always been. And so then we have the pagan prayer coming around or being performed in 1940. I view it almost as a culmination of all that other stuff that was going on mm-hmm. in his life.
3: Yeah, in the 30s, where is he living in the 30s?
2: I believe he still in New York. He's in New I know York, he moves yeah. to California at some point. In 1940, I think he yeah. goes
3: to LA because he becomes a movie star mm-hmm. uh, also in the 40s. Yeah, so he's he's building this resort. He's entrepreneurial kind of in that area, in the New York area. But yeah, but to be able to do that during the Depression is it's really remarkable. Right. Yeah. Another piece, African Suite,
2: is a piece that he pens. Is that right? Is that, a,
3: is that one of the ones that you've looked
2: at? Yes, I've looked at it briefly. I think that is one of the ones that is has an orchestral component, and I'm not aware of any performances of that suite in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that most of those pieces that, that bear that, you know, I think uh, he might have pulled out a lullaby. I think there's a Zulu lullaby uh, that has a piano accompaniment, but most of the African suite has more of an orchestral score attached to it. So um, I think he is listed as composer, but I don't even know if he did most of the arranging. So he might have sat at the piano and come up with the chord progressions and the length and actual composition, but an orchestrator or an arranger might have come back behind him and actually put the parts in and copied the parts out by hand to make sure that everyone in the orchestra was on the same page. I
3: see. So something a little less reflective of him, but more of a group effort. Mm -hmm. Now, so how prolific is he as a composer during this period?
2: I'm going to say relatively prolific, given that the works were not really published, you know? So if there's a publisher involved, then there might've been a demand. And so if there's a demand, then you create and keep filling that demand. But because there wasn't a real demand for his works, I think he composed when he wanted to, or perhaps when he needed to. If he wanted to do something different for another concert, okay, well, go down Moses. Okay, I'm tired of doing that. Let me get another spiritual arrangement done and do that. And so there's some other ballads and dialects. So we have some like, I love you, baby or something like that. So that's a ballad sung in dialect. So you see all the the broken English and all that other stuff appearing in the score. So that's really interesting to see. So not only do you have spirituals and ballads and these kind of piercing songs that are that are personal testaments of, of things like that and then you come back with a Zulu lullaby and then you have some other songs that are based on French texts it's just a wide array of things and so it's basically almost a he has got
3: a Swiss army voice
2: yeah it's just uh, almost uh, like well let's see uh, let's see what I need for this concert okay let's see if I can make it happen and then he sticks with it and but the other thing is that once go down Moses is off the program it very seldom comes back so mm-hmm. it's almost like okay I'm done with that let me keep going and so we see the voice was developing that way, so very. Uh, I don't think "Go Down, Moses" appears on many programs after 1933, and so he's just continuing to compose and continuing to compose and create new pieces as they are needed, or as he continues to concertize.
0: He would have been fascinating to talk to because he has all these different tastes and interests and different types of music. I yes. mean, I would love to pick his brain.
2: Yes, <laughs> indeed, indeed.
3: He's singing in other languages. I mean, <laughs> and just the range of styles that his career touches on, the different styles of music he's singing?
2: Yes, but they all fit within a certain vein, and that vein is going to be the concert stage. So even if it's a popular ballad, Mm -hmm. it still has the context, if you will, or the trappings of a concert piece from a certain perspective. So we don't see him doing much jazz or popular music or anything with big band accompaniment or anything like that. So if he's singing, he's still singing from the standpoint of, of a concert tradition or an art music tradition or a classical tradition, but he might expand those slightly, you know, to go a little bit outside of what we would call classical to do a ballad or to do a spiritual or something like that. But all of the works were conceived as concert works, those to be performed on a concert stage. Mm-hmm.
3: You mentioned his uh, service to the country in World War II, mainly I think doing bond drives and kind of promoting mm-hmm. patriotism, and it's also going. We're also going to lose him during the war years. Do you know
2: much about his death? I believe that he was injured on set at some point in the '41 or '42. There's a pretty interesting picture of him in the hospital, and then I think there was just a brain hemorrhage or something mm-hmm. like that that I don't think was related to the injury that w- that happened on set, and it was. I would say that it was unexpected.
3: Yeah. So in I think it's July 14th, 1943. Mm-hmm. He's got a cerebral hemorrhage, Mm -hmm. but he had been in kind of several films. I know in the beginning of the 1940s
2: and not necessarily leading
3: roles, but yeah, but like Santa Fe Trail and drums of the Congo, Mm -hmm. and Western Union, Union, very diverse set of films uh, that he's involved in. The piece that you're going to do, can you can we transition and talk a little bit about? What's upcoming, uh, the, the, the program that you, you've been putting together okay. that you've
2: masterminded here? <laughs> yeah. Well, the program's basically going to be a mixture of works that he performed in Waco, with the exception of one piece. And the whole idea of putting on a concert or really thinking about this actually came from my looking at his Carnegie Hall program. And so when I looked at the Carnegie Hall program, I was really amazed by it. And this was before I even looked at what we had in the Texas collection. I was like, wow, he sang a pretty good program. That was a solid program. I wouldn't mind restaging the Carnegie Hall program here in Waco.
3: Now, give us a little insight. What was it about the program that...
2: Well, it was just a wide range of works. I see. So we just had, we had opera arias, we had art songs, we had original compositions, we had works by black composers, we had a lot of different things. It was just a wide ranging program and it was in Carnegie Hall mm-hmm. and So in order for you to pull off that type of concert in Carnegie Hall means that you had to have some kind of reputation. So in order for you to set that kind of program and do it in Carnegie Hall meant something. Not only did he do the standard works that one might expect to hear in Carnegie Hall, but he had a pretty decent set of works or a certain section of the concert that was not devoted to any composer of Western descent or Western European descent. I thought that was very impressive particularly in the early 1930s to be able to pull that off and for folks to go Mm -hmm. and to to have the, the sponsorship from the various piano companies and things that lended the pianos to the event. I thought that was impressive. Then when I went into the the Texas collection and actually looked at his papers and really like, oh my goodness, he, he performed in Waco. Wow, he performed in Waco again. Wow, he performed in Waco again. It's like, well, let's make this a Waco thing and let's see if we can just do the Waco concerts and let's restage those and we'll put one piece from the Carnegie Hall concerts in there, but everything else that will be on the program will be a piece that that he performed in Waco. So it's going to be uh, music and voice? Piano and voice. Piano and voice. There will be two piano compositions. One will be by the Afro-British composer Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, and the other one will be in Etude, I believe, by Chaminade, one of the Chaminade works that he performed in 1916. The other songs will be, all will be in English. One's going to be about Elgar, British composer. Again, a few American composers like LaForge and Harry Burley, and I believe there would be five or six original compositions by Burley that he performed here in Waco between the years 25 and 35.
3: Are any of these his compositions? Yes. Okay. These are all his compositions? Not
2: all of them. Not Some all of them. them will be. Some About of them. five or six will be original Bledsoe compositions or arrangements. Everything else will be by other composers. Okay. So but these will all be pieces that he performed here.
3: So I'm wondering, has anybody performed them since Bledsoe performed them?
2: It's going to be a hard call. I'm going to say probably not yeah. because if they've been buried in the collection, then someone would have had to have dug them out and performed them. And I don't know if that's happened. Five of his original pieces have been published, but even that print run was limited and it is no longer in print. So whoever has those books has them. And we just don't know if those pieces have been performed recently. But I'm going to stretch to say that some of them have not been heard in Waco since they were performed in Waco some 85, 95 years ago.
3: Do you develop, if you look at a composer's work and you look at their notes, I would think after a period of time, you can develop a sensibility for the language that they're using to compose in, or you can maybe make, you can see what they're doing. You can begin to read it. Maybe it's like listening to an accent for a period of time. You begin to decipher and it becomes clearer and you can understand it it's easier to comprehend what's what they're trying to do
2: and what they're doing is
3: that was that true and kind of looking at these blood soaked compositions and spending time
2: with them in some ways yes the arranged work so things that are coming from Pre established source, meaning the spirituals, you can kind of track a restraint, basically. Mm-hmm. So even if we have an arrangement of a spiritual popping up after one of his more personal artistic expression pieces, so for to see a complex harmonic palette being displayed in one piece and then maybe two years later, something that shows very little, not much of that type of harmonic language, basically shows that there is a restraint, so there's not always a a linear progression about, okay, well, here's this phase, or here's this, you know, so uh, as music historians, we love periods. You know, we can, oh, this style period, and oh, this is the middle period, and this is the late period. Well, we don't have that because he didn't compose that long. So we basically just have Jules Bledsoe, and we just have to kind of deal with him piece by piece, need by need, concert by concert, venue by venue, audience by audience, and then kind of make some determinations about, how the compositional language developed and perhaps a little bit more into why certain decisions were made. And that's really where my work lies is in the interpretive domain.
3: I would think he would be hard just because the variety. So he's not sitting in one place with something for a long period of time. He's, he's doing a real vari- wide variety of work.
2: Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes, yeah. he is. From year to year, mm-hmm. from year to year. Yeah. So
0: this is one of the first times you're going to be able to hear exactly what this has sounded like. You've you've had the music, and you know I read music as well. So sometimes you can look at a piece and you can get an idea of what it's going to sound like. You can even play the parts, but actually putting it all together, is the first time you're going to hear Jules Bloodso right. Right.
2: <laughs> and that's exciting. Very exciting for me. It just moves. It moves from from artifact, you mm-hmm. know, to to an actual musical event, and that's important. You you know, to, to say that he was a composer is one thing, but to hear him as a composer actually does justice to the enterprise. And so it, it's that piece, you know, it's almost like, oh, well, he was the first to do this and he was the first to do that. Well, that's that's fine and dandy, but composers want their works heard. Mm-hmm. One interesting facet of this particular concert is that it, it won't be all male voices. We're going to have some students from Baylor. Uh, the student response to the to the call was amazing. Seven student singers asked to participate, and I happen to have seven pieces, so I was <laughs> glad that I was able mm-hmm. to accommodate everyone. We're gonna have a guest singer coming in from um, MCC, and so she's gonna sing two pieces. And so we're, we're gonna hear some sopranos, we're gonna hear some mezzo-sopranos, we're gonna hear some tenors, we're gonna hear some baritones, we're gonna hear some basses, and, and we're just gonna hear people sing and do the best with his music as they can. Will it be an authentic performance? I don't know and I really don't care. The fact is, is that it's there and that it's happening and that his music and his voice is actually getting to live in that space. And I think that's what he might have wanted. As his, as his career progressed.
0: It sounds kind of like when you know someone who's famous and you, you've read about them and seen them for so long, and then you finally like talk to them or run into them. You're like, oh, wow, this is how you are. And this is like your chance to kind of get to know him. Yes, this is
2: <laughs> our our only way to actually get to hear him uh, other than r- recordings. And right. those recordings are somewhat static. You know, they function like books in some ways. The compositions actually allow him to breathe and move in those spaces in a lot of different ways. And hopefully this will encourage. another concert you know restaging Bledsoe part two in Waco and beyond and so we can get into the other works and get into the African pieces and things like that and perhaps pull in an orchestra some kind of way and you know get some kind of recording and do liner notes and and all that so there are lots of things that we that that are in the works or at least in my brain (laughs) with regard to Bledsoe and Waco but I just think it's just important to get people out and to to hear Waco he's a Waco product Waco's been good to me since I've been here, and if uh, this is the very least that I can do for the greater Waco community, that's that's that. And musicology is my thing, so why not work with what you got?
0: Mm-hmm. Are you guys going to record it?
2: I am going to bring a little bitty recorder <laughs> uh, just so that I can record for study purposes. Don't want to get in any issues or trouble, even though I think it's okay, but... No, no commercially available recordings will come out of this. And to
3: have it at New Hope, uh, just the church that his family has been intertwined with from the beginning of New Hope, just what a wonderful space.
0: Isn't Horace great, Randy? I told you Horace. Oh, it's amazing. For me, uh, you know, kind of feels like you know we've talked about Doris Miller before, and he's like the hometown hero in this military athletic sense. It sounds like Bledsoe really could be Waco's hero in kind of like the musical sense, because he's just such a prodigy.
2: In some ways, I believe so, but you know, it's, it's, it will take a lot of work. From the standpoint of storytelling, you know, once you've done it, then the story is kind of told. And so basically, maybe in a book that might have been written in 1970, Bledsoe might have gotten two paragraphs. And so subsequent versions of that book, as other figures enter, his paragraph gets shorter or smaller and smaller and smaller. And so then we hope that he doesn't become a footnote, but in, in some ways that kind of thing happens and so by getting these works performed at home you know and the personal investments the meaning of that for that to happen at home is is very significant And so just like you would you, you would gravitate toward the, the the big story you know that's a very you know the, the Miller story is an amazing story mm-hmm. it's been immortalized on film and so not only do we have a story we also have Cooper Gooding Jr. I believe mm-hmm. in that role so now we have film and so we have a constant reminder of that and we do have the blood, so Miller, why? Mm -hmm. And so... You know, Bledsoe's name is first. And so, you know, we have a lot of Miller, but we don't have a lot of Bledsoe. And so hopefully this will kind of get the get the ball rolling and, and moving in that direction. Maybe a Bledsoe music festival or something like that, where Ooh. we can get into and just do all kinds of different, you know, music and or, or anything like that. A named festival or something like that would be really be interesting. Just to just to let folks know that it's just a little bit more than Old Man River. Just a little <laughs> bit more than Old yeah. Man River. But, you know, that's the that's the claim to fame to be. Sure. Just and so that's going to be the marker for sure for him. But hopefully that could be a, a a foundation or a launch point for for us to really have more discussions about his life and his work and actually what he the place that he actually carved out for lots of musicians of color that proceeded after he walked this earth.
0: You kind of answered it there, but I was going to ask, like, what's his, his legacy and his inspiration for younger generations that are in the area and they see him as this person who really went out and did amazing things with his gifts?
2: The legacy for me is, is quite simple. The black musical experience is not monolithic. And so anywhere where there is sound, you can carve out your own space. It does not have to be just hip-hop. It doesn't have to be just blues. It doesn't have to be gospel. It could be country. It could be classical. It could be rock. Wherever there is sound and once it touches your hands, it becomes yours. It could be opera. Indeed.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much, Horace. Thank Thanks, you,
1: Cross and, Waco, and I'll make it by dawn. the Brazos and Waco.
0: Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time.
1: i go as he dropped the guns that she hated In the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos at Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos at Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire he knew that at last had been found as the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying that all of her dreams were in vain as she kissed his lips for the last time she heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio